0: Welcome to Scuba Shack Radio, episode 45, recorded Sunday, November 8th, 2020. Scuba Shack Radio is a bi-weekly podcast in support of our mission to empower individuals with knowledge, ability, and experience to venture underwater in pursuit of their aspirations and to advocate for ocean health and sustainability. Hi there, everyone, and thanks for listening to Scuba Shack Radio. I'm your host, Jeff Centropino. It has certainly been an historic week, with incredible voter turnout and equally incredible fortitude by all the election workers who were so dedicated to making every vote count. Thank you. Sadly, the pandemic is still raging, and we will continue to be challenged for some time to come. I'm confident we will come together, confront, and combat this crisis as one United States. Today, I'm going to talk a little bit about tank valves, then introduce you to a new bill that was just introduced in Congress connecting the ocean to combating climate change, and then wrap up with a little more information on one of the pioneers in scuba diving, Dick Anderson. There is no doubt that scuba diving is a gear-intensive sport. Some of the gear is pretty simple and doesn't require much maintenance. Things like a spool or a dive knife just need to be cleaned and properly protected. Pretty straightforward. Other gear is a little more sophisticated, and in addition to the routine cleaning after use and proper storage, that gear will require periodic maintenance. Obviously, your regulator will need its periodic overhaul according to specification. And as we have talked about on this podcast before, the annual visual inspection of your scuba cylinder is required, plus its hydrostatic test every five years. There is one piece of gear, however, that may not be as serviced as often as it should, and that is the tank valve. It is true that we inspect the valve when we do our visual tank inspection. And make sure that it operates smoothly. We take a look at the snorkel or dip tube and the threads, and to see if there is any damage. And then we clean up the valve and we we replace the tank neck valve and the O ring. But the question should be asked about how often should you have your valve overhauled? Now I'm not aware of any specific guidance on this. Normally, if the valve is working properly, we tend to kind of ignore it, but It has been operating in a fairly harsh environment, and we know what salt water can do to our equipment. That's why, after we've been out diving in the ocean, we take our tanks out of the van and hose them down with fresh water to ensure that we don't get our valves all gunked up. But still, how do you know that all the components inside the valve are okay? That's why one of the things we recommend is that you have your valve overhauled, when you have your tank's hydrostatic test every five years. Some may say this is unnecessary and not worth it. Others might think that's too long to go without having it done. I'm not suggesting there's a right or wrong answer here. Like I said, our recommendation is that the valve be overhauled every five years. While it doesn't guarantee you won't have a problem, it does reduce the risk of an issue happening with this sometimes neglected piece of dive equipment. So, let's talk a little bit more about what's going on inside your valve. Deep inside that valve, there is a plug and seat assembly, and it gets turned by a stem, and that stem runs through something called a bonnet nut. Now, between the bonnet nut and the stem, depending on the type of valve, you normally have a copper gasket, along with a couple of Teflon rings. And, on the other side of the bonnet nut is a washer, that sits between the bonnet nut and the hand wheel. So you can see there's a lot of parts in there, and all of these can deteriorate over time and cause a problem. Additionally, the plug and seat assembly along with the stem can wear out. Another potential issue can come up with the burst disk failing. We replace the burst disk whenever we overhaul a valve. Also, we must adhere to proper torque specifications when putting the valve back together. We are all taught in our open water class about the yoke valve and the DIN valve and how it's called a K-valve. We are also taught to inspect the valve to ensure there's an O-ring present if it wears out On if we're using a yoke fitting, and we are introduced to the burst disc. But, As I have outlined, there's a lot more going on inside that valve. I really recommend that you go uh, online and uh, take a look at some of the, the, the valve diagrams that are out there. Knowing a little bit more about the equipment you're using is a good thing. Also, if you own your own tanks, or if you haven't had the valve overhauled in a while, you might consider having it done. Tank valves are something that we take for granted, but there's a lot going on inside. A few days ago, I was on the Ocean Conservancy's website and went to the Confronting Climate Change section where I came across a publication titled Celebrating the First Comprehensive Bill on Ocean Climate Action, with a subtitle that states Bringing Ocean Solutions to the Fight Against Climate Change. Now that sounded interesting, so it's time to dig in. The bill is House Resolution 8632, and it was introduced on October 20, 2020. And it was introduced by Arizona's 3rd District Congressman, Raul Grijalva. The bill is known as the Ocean Based Climate Solutions Act of 2020. Congressman Grijalva is the chair of the House Natural Resource Committee. He has been in Congress since 2003. It's encouraging to know that even in the midst of the pandemic, presidential election, and all of the unrest we're facing, the work of Congress on such critically important issues continues. In addition to Raul Grijalva's sponsorship, there are 24 co-sponsors. As I like to do, I went out and downloaded House Resolution 8632, and it's comprehensive, 324 pages. Let's start by reading just what is the Ocean-Based Climate Solution Act of 2020. It's a bill to direct the Secretary of Commerce, acting through the Administrator of the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration to provide ocean-based climate solutions, to reduce carbon emissions and global warming, to make coastal communities more resilient, and to provide for the conservation and restoration of ocean and coastal habitats, biodiversity, and marine mammal and fish populations, and for other purposes. The bill is broken down into 15 sections that covers areas from promoting offshore renewable energy, protecting blue carbon, supporting climate-ready fisheries, and expanding marine protected areas and improving ocean health. I'm not going to go into all 15 sections. That would take a while. So I'll pick out a few things that I found interesting. First, one of the sections, uh, the Section 1 of the bill, is called marine and coastal blue carbon. The bill defines blue carbon stock as the terrestrial and marine vegetation and underlying sediment that has the capacity to sequester and store atmospheric carbon. It further further defines coastal blue carbon ecosystems as habitats including mangroves, tidal marshes, seagrasses, kelp forests, and other tidal and saltwater wetlands, And these have the capacity to sequester carbon from the atmosphere, and they're projecting that they want it to sequester carbon for at least 100 years. The bill calls for a blue carbon program, a national map of coastal and marine blue carbon ecosystems, establishing a blue carbon grant program, protecting and restoring coastal blue carbon ecosystems, and other activities. Section 2 of the bill covers marine protected areas. A couple of things I found interesting here was the development of a marine biodiversity gap, and there is a subsection on protecting deep-sea corals. The marine protection area section of the bill ties into the National Marine Sanctuaries Act. I want to spend a little time on Section 3, offshore energy. First, the bill calls for a prohibition of gas and oil leasing in all areas of the outer continental shelf. Secondly, the bill has specific targets for developing offshore renewable energy. Specifically, it targets developing 12.5 gigawatts by 2025 and then doubling that to 25 gigawatts by 2030. So what does that mean for our energy situation? Depending on what model you use, one gigawatt can, can power between 300,000 to 700,000 homes. So if you take the low end, 12.5 uh, gigawatts would power 3.75 million houses, and then you double that to 7.5 million by 2030. That would be incredible. The bill states that this would create 83,000 jobs Cost $57 billion of cum- cumulative investment, resulting in a $25 billion annual economic benefit. As I have indicated, there is a lot in this bill. Things like reducing emissions from shipping, limiting ship speeds in the U.S. Economic, uh, exclusive economic zone, and confronting sea level rise. There is even a provision for a Coral Reef Prize competition that ties into the Coral Reef Conservation Act of 2000. Well, it looks like I'm going to have to do a little more uh, research into laws, uh, specifically the Coral Reef Conservation Act. The Ocean Conservancy calls this bill the first comprehensive U.S. bill on ocean climate solution action. The bill will now be taken up by a number of committees uh, in Congress. The timeline for these committees is not yet developed. It has a long way to go, and I'm sure there will be a lot of headwinds. But as Congressman Grijalva said when he introduced the bill, a healthy ocean is key to fighting the climate crisis. Several months ago, I did a segment on Healthways, one of the early U.S. scuba equipment manufacturers and distributors that started way back in the 1950s. If you want to listen to that segment, I recently posted it on the Scuba Shack Radio Facebook page. During my research on Healthways, I came across a really interesting individual, Richard E. Anderson and knew that eventually I would do a little more digging into his life and legacy to share here on the podcast. Dick Anderson was a pioneer of scuba diving in the United States. He was born on September 26, 1932. I believe he was originally from the Oregon area, but, uh, but very early in his life moved to uh, Southern California. In the late 1940s, he bought a mask and started spearfishing around Santa Monica. Well, in a fortuitous turn of events, in the early 1950s, Renee Buzos, who was just starting U.S. Divers and Aqualung, placed a help wanted ad to work in his shop. Dick applied for the job, got it, and was off and running. There are some who say that Dick Anderson was the first Aqualung repair technician in the United States. In a 2004 article in Historical Diver by Kent Rockwell, Dick reminisces about working for Rene. I guess Rene was a pretty frugal guy and perhaps a little strict to work for. In any event, Dick's innovative juices were just starting to flow. Soon, he departed U.S. Divers and headed to Florida, I think where he hooked up with uh, Paul Arnold and Bill Arpin, who um, were working with, and he started working with them on the Diver Regulator. And it was while he was in Florida that he landed a job working on Disney's 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, which I think was filmed in Nassau. So after he finishes working with Disney on the movie, he heads out to E.R. Cross's commercial diving school and starts working with him as a commercial diver. Then, in 1956, Richard Klein hires Dick to join Healthways and establish a scuba division. It's here that Dick Anderson really starts his innovation with regulators. At this time, double-hose scuba regulators are the norm. But Dick has ideas about a single-hose regulator. When Kent Rockwell visited Dick in 2004, he was doing some research regarding Healthways regulators. And it just so happened that Dick still had his original single-hose piston first-stage regulator in his workshop. Kent calls it the Bronze Age Relic. It's very interesting to me right now as I'm rebuilding several old Healthways regulators, and it's interesting to see Dick Anderson's work firsthand. So Dick leaves Healthways for a short period but comes back to continue to create new regulators. And at this time, Sportsways with Sam Le- LeCocq is also building their water single-hose regulator. The water lung has a protruding purge button, and Dick's response was to cut a hole in the regulator face and make the button flush. He continues to develop scuba equipment for both Healthways and then Scuba Pro, and there are some who say all regulators are based on all modern regulators are based on Dick's innovation. In 1962, Dick Anderson was one of the two support divers for the Swiss scientist Hannes Keller's 1,000-foot dive. Hannes Keller, along with journalist Peter Small, went down 1,000 feet in a diving bell. Hannes exited the bell for a dive and then re-entered. As they were ascending, problems began. Dick and the other support diver, Chris Whitaker, went down to 2,000 foot to 200 feet to see what the issue was. Apparently, they, they went back to the surface but had to go back down again. Dick found the problem. Hannes' fin had get, gotten caught in the hatch of the diving bell, but Dick uh, had given Hannes his dive knife. So Dick's got to get his knife from Chris and cut away the fin so the hatch can close. Both Keller and Small were passed out inside. With the fin cut away, Dick sends Chris to the surface. Something went wrong. Chris never made it, and his body was never recovered. Peter Small died, but Hannes Keller survived. Dick Anderson is also connected to Sea Hunt. Most of Sea Hunt was filmed in shallow water, but Lloyd Bridges wanted to go, go on a deep dive. After the show ended in 1961... Dick took Lloyd on a dive to 125 or 120 feet. Dick was married to Bridget Roach, the daughter of Hal Roach, a Hollywood producer. He continued to work in the entertainment world as well, with work on Jaws, The Revenge, and Baywatch. He also produced his own movie in 1970, called Gold from the Winfield Scott. Good luck trying to find that. Richard E. Anderson died in, in June 2006 at age 73 from ALS. We owe, we owe a lot to pioneers like Dick Anderson, who have made our sport better and safer. Well, that's it for today. Hope you enjoyed the show. I'm definitely excited about the Ocean-Based Climate Solutions Act, and we will keep tabs on it and provide updates along the way. In the meantime, thanks again for listening, and please stay safe and healthy. Goodbye.